Hello again and welcome back to the Methods Matter podcast from Dementia Researcher and the National Centre for Research Methods. This show navigates the murky waters of research methods, so if, like me, you didn't pay enough attention during your methods lectures, this is the show for you. In this series, we'll be looking at five different research methods with an expert from the field and a dementia researcher that has put the method into practice. My name is Leah Fulliger. I'm a PhD student from the University of Southampton and I research dementia care and faecal incontinence. This podcast came about when I got to my um, methodology section of my thesis and realised, I don't know what I'm writing. So together we're going on a voyage of discovery. Today we are getting neighbourly, leaning over the garden fence and having a good gossip to discuss social network analysis. And bringing all the news we'll need today are two awesome guests. In the expert corner is Dr. David Griffiths from the University of Stirling. His research focuses on social connections and social advantage. And what tool does he rely on to get to the heart of the issues? You guessed it, social network analysis, along with social survey methods. Hi, David, thank you for coming. Hi, thanks for inviting me. It's lovely having you. (laughs) And our hands-on researcher for today is joining us all the way from Sydney, Australia. In a recent interview, she was quoted as saying nearly everything about our brain function and brain health has to do with social relationships and is formed by the broader social community, which means she's the perfect person to be joining us today. We're delighted to welcome Dr. Anne-Nicole Casey from the University of New South Wales. Hi, Anne-Nicole. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Leah. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So thank you so much for starting I've, I've already said I'd have no idea what time it is there but thank you so much for starting outside of normal times <laughs> perhaps we should start by doing our own piece of social network analysis and see if you both already knew each other with some sort of six degrees of separation test David do you have any connections to Australia uh, I've got a colleague Dr Hannah Graham who's originally from Australia so that would be my quickest route to Australia. So there is a connection there. How about you, Anne Nicole? Any connections to Scotland or social advantage? Um, we do have dear friends who are Stirling locals, uh, though I don't believe they're associated with the university. Um, as far as social advantage, no direct connections, but definitely an interest in social determinants of health and how social ties affect brain health. So. What do I know? We begin each podcast with me giving a summary of what I understand to be the method we're discussing, which of course today is social network analysis. And today I have to admit, I'm not gonna fare very well. So when I think of social networks, I actually imagine Facebook and Twitter and social media and I had a very embarrassing conversation with um, one of the higher ups at National Centre for Research Methods where we talked about social network analysis and he asked if I knew what that was and I said yeah that's 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 Facebook and that isn't it and he just sort of looked at me and went no no it's not (laughs) but um, I now realise of course that it isn't just about digital technology it's about understanding communities and how they work and how they change and how they might contribute to overall health. Oxford Bibliographies tells us that in its beginnings in the 1930s, social network analysis has emerged as a major paradigm for social theory and research. It is used by researchers in such disciplines as sociology, social anthropology, social psychology, political science, and pretty much every other area that exists. 
At the heart of it are three insights, that social relations are more important than individual attributes in understanding human society, that the structure of social relations is more important than their content, and that social relations can be represented by graphs of points and lines, which then can then be analysed visually. David, having put to bed my rather terrible understanding, and then the rather stuffy formal description, can you give us a better idea of the technique and introduce us to the method and, and tell me that social media is at least part of it? <laughs> yeah, that was a good description. Um, social media is obviously a part of network analysis in the sense that it gives us fantastic data sets that we can use. And it is a very good tool for studying social media, but it, network analysis is much bigger. It's really what we think of as a network is just any system that's got some form of actors in and when i say actors i might mean individuals or companies and lots of people are doing this at network analysis rocking it for instance animals and trying to understand better the way that animals communicate with other animals where you can apply network analysis so when we talk about actors we can be talking about anything we can rock it out concepts are related to each other but the main focus of what we think of as being a network study is when we're interested in some way in terms of the connections that occur between actors. So we're not viewing, for instance, from a sociology perspective, we're not viewing that individuals exist within a system and the system has influence over the individuals. We're thinking about the way that the relationships within that structure might make a difference. So one example that I often give is thinking about whether or not you're likely to attend a fancy dress party. So if you're the sort of person like me who hates fancy dress parties, it's something that you need to spend a lot of time worrying about whether you ever get invited to one or not. But if you find that none of your friends are interested in fancy dress parties, chances are you're never going to get invited to one. But if you find that most of your friends are fans of fancy dress parties, chances are you're going to get invited at one point. So that's where we think about people's connections can then have influences where the structure of your friends can make a difference to you whereas if you had a different set of friends you might be sort of less likely or more likely to attend such parties but it's not just thinking about the number of friends it's also thinking about the way that those friends are structured because if for instance you've got 10 friends and five of them are big fans of fancy dress parties if those five happen to be the five people that you spend a lot of time with or all know each other then chances are that big group of people, that creek, is at some point going to come up with the idea of a fancy dress party. And because you know lots of people at that party, it's going to be very difficult to get out of it. Whereas if you're a big creek of five people or dislike fancy dress parties, and it's five people quite separate from each other, so for instance, someone you used to work with and sort of your sister's best friend and just five people that aren't connected, are fans of fancy dress parties, then there's possibly less chance of you being invited to one. And if you only know one person there, then your ability to get out of it is much higher. So these are the sort of things that we can think about from a network perspective. It's first of all, how do the connections you've got in the immediate area have some form of influence or control over you, but also how does the actual structure of those wider connections and what does it mean if your friends know each other? And if you're, for instance, an organization, what does it mean if your trustees are sitting on the boards of other organisations? So we're thinking a little bit about it at the individual level and a little bit at the more collective network level. 
that's a fantastic example and that really just like made sense in my head because I really don't like fancy dress parties <laughs> so um why would someone choose this method what sort of questions is it answering uh, there's all sorts of different questions you could look at so sometimes you might be interested in thinking about the way that somebody's network is structured so as an obvious example, we might be interested in whether people have got some level of social support. So we might be interested in asking them questions about the people around them because we want to make sure that the support network is full of the resources that they need. So if, for instance, somebody needs some level of support, for instance, someone going to do their shopping for them and they've not got anyone who can provide that service, then sometimes we're interested in that at the more sort of obvious sort of level of what your network can do for you. But we can also think about it in terms of the way networks are structured themselves. So if we're wanting to rock at, for instance, the way that organisations work as a corrective, then trying to rock at how they work together is going to be a really important way of rocking at the system. So uh, recently we had a PhD student, for instance, Arana Carrera, who did a study about the system of dementia care in Central America and what she was studying is what the organizations were doing but speaking to people within organizations to see what other organizations they were connected to to try and work out whether the dementia field was well connected or whether it was completely separate from each other and by having that perception of whether organizations seem to be working together or working in a competition with each other gives us a nice idea about what each organization is doing individually and also how the wider sec sector is working so we can understand a lot more about the way that some social structures are working by thinking about these issues of interconnectivity so sometimes we're interested in the network as being an explanation of the individual behavior and sometimes we're interested in the individual behaviors as an example of how the network is working and Nicole, I know you're pretty expert at this yourself. Um, can you tell us how you've used social network analysis in your research? Certainly. I first used social network analysis in my PhD, and I explored the friendships and social relationships of older people who are living in residential care facilities, um, focusing on people who have a diagnosis of dementia. And I looked at the, the networks, um, perceived social, social isolation and support. Um, I collected observational data of multivalence relationships. So whether the relationships were positive or negative or ambivalent. And in order to do this, um, I conducted interviews with people who had the diagnosis and staff members. And I talked to family members in an informal manner. And I looked at chart data and use standardized assessments like the Lubin social network scale. And I collected observational data directly in real time. And the residents who were able to would answer the questions about who their friends were, um, how they felt about the relationships, what friendship meant to them. Um, I didn't ask them directly um, when they didn't like people <laughs> for ethical reasons. <laughs> it, um, what, the, what the method allowed me to do was look at the size of the networks, the direction of the ties, you know, um, 
if someone indicated that they had a friendship with another person, did that person reciprocate that relationship? Um, looked at the density of social networks, so how interconnected the relationships were. Did um, people know one another and have groups or form groups? And also um, the structure of that allowed us to see the potential flow of social support through that structure. Mm. But unfortunately, <laughs> the findings highlighted that residents unfortunately um, felt isolated and showed a lack of engagement. Uh, even though most people retained a clear concept of what friendship meant to them, um, they reported small sparse networks and indicated that they had few, if any, friendships. Um, many people had no positive relationships and most people felt isolated. So it was, it was a bit bleak. Um, but people did wish to reach out in positive ways and connect in, in meaningful ways to them. And what we found is that they were applying long-held friendship schema so they, the way they had thought about friendships and social relationships all their life, they were still thinking in the same way, but the environment was drastically different and the people around them were different and they weren't choosing the people around them. Usually when you have a social relationship or a friendship, you're choosing one another and people in the setting were being forced together. And often because of different effects of the dementia, um, they, they felt they didn't know one another. Um, the people that they lived with perhaps would do things that they didn't like or you know, enter their rooms or take things. And of course they weren't doing it on purpose, <laughs> but yet people still were applying the same, the same concepts of social behavior and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. So that was a bit difficult. Um, and given the few friendships and the the common negative relationships, our results suggested that it was really necessary to monitor, monitor and cultivate relationships between people who live together in care um, to create a social environment that supports the personhood and well-being of residents with dementia. And that person-centered care should include a greater attention to the broader social context in which the residents lived. And of course, with the COVID pandemic, um, we've seen this play out. Yeah, I, I was going to ask is, is sort of, has the pandemic changed how or helped others to understand the importance of social networks? I think it has, unfortunately, a bit belatedly, um, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> is, um, it, it, it's slightly frustrating as a social network um, researcher and a dementia researcher um, that to realize that this type of research and evidence was going on, you know, at least almost a decade ago. Mm. And um, it just wasn't a consideration. Um, the social relationships between people that, that are forced to live together 24 um, seven. <laughs> it's very important in their lives. It's meaningful. It shapes their whole you know, each day and their entire time together mm. and the relationships with staff and the relationships with visitors, visiting family members and other healthcare professionals. I have a friend um, 
at this um, Dementia Center for Research Collaboration is doing her PhD and she looked at social professional networks of people with dementia who are living in residential aged care. And her uh, results indicated that the people she spoke with were encountering anywhere from 80 to 90 different people wow. um, in where they live. And it's something you wouldn't normally think of um, when you think of someone as being socially isolated and yet completely surrounded by people at the same time, but people that they're not really connecting with and maybe they don't recognize or don't remember or don't know very well. Um, so that's, yeah, that was my experience with playing social network analysis. It doesn't sound like a particularly happy one. <laughs> it, it was it, but there was, there was hope, there was light. It was nice to see that some people were forming relationships and friendships and, and it gave us an opportunity to look at what could, you know, what could be improved. Yeah. I, I will ask one question because you said um, about, you know, obviously ethically, you can't ask about people your participants don't like. But is that something that's important to know in social network analysis? Is that useful information? I believe so, yeah, and, and Dave could probably comment on this more, um, but particularly in dementia care research, um, I think it's very important to understand when people are unhappy with their social relationships. I could have asked people directly, um, some people volunteered the information on their own and it was often quite obvious when people weren't getting on. Um, yeah. Yes. So um, it, it is, and it's, it's difficult for uh, care staff um, and family members to know what to do in that situation because often they can't really change the person's um living arrangements or who the roommates are you know where they are is often dependent on where there's a bed available you know where they can go mm. um so it's it's important in so much as if there's an um an issue if someone's unhappy if it's a trigger for them which understandably a, a lot of the times it would be for certain reactions um it's important to know that if someone's mm. being bullied or someone's being harassed, or um, someone's being aggressive. You know, there are, there are very serious ramifications <laughs> to that. And yeah. if someone's constantly harassing you, and and you respond in its in, in a way that that appears as agitation or aggression to someone else, then then you might endure some sort of restraint or. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, um, we hate, you know, you don't want to see that in modern care environments, but it happens. So whilst it's a, an ethically challenging question, it is something that's important to know and observe, even if you can't ask it. Um, so now we have a description of what the method is and an example of how it's been used. So let's get into detail and provide some top tips for anyone who is new to using this method. In this segment, I'm going to ask some quick, straightforward questions to both guests on how to put this method into practice. So, David, these first ones are for you. How should someone prepare? Uh, the most important thing is to think about what type of data you want to be correcting. So if we take an example like Anne Nicole's just been talking about, then 
if we were in a residential setting, would we want to get information on everybody within the setting and the connections between those people? So then we could have a very defined set of people because it would be the residents and the staff. And we then need to come up with some way that we can join them together in terms of do they like each other or do they interact with each other? So we could do it in that respect of thinking from a very sort of more formal network where we can produce a nice visualization. Or we might be interested in doing it in a bit more of an informal way of just taking some of the residents themselves and trying to get some information from them who they perceive their network to be. But it's a bit more complicated than just saying to somebody who's your network. You then need to come up with normally five or six trigger questions where you say things like, who do you enjoy talking to about particular things in your life? So if you ask people to name up to five people in those areas, you can come up with a network of the people that are important to them anyway. So you can think about different ways about the way that you're going to really approach the subject. And one thing that I'd always say about network analysis is it's much more of a toolkit that has lots of different things you can use rather than it being a very sort of recipe type way of doing things. So sometimes you might just be wanting to take some of the concepts and some of the theories that are important. And sometimes you might be wanting to take some of the sort of nice visualizations that, where we can draw really detailed pictures that can normally tell us a lot more about a structure than what we can tell from words. So to give an example of that, a lot of people walk into grooming networks for monkeys and apes and they're able to see there's an hierarchical structure. So if you draw a little picture that this ape grooms this ape that then grooms this ape, you can see the structure of how that little community is working in a really nice visual way that would take quite a lot of explanation. So sometimes the visualizations are important and sometimes we want to use some of the more metrics involved. So there's a lot of particular statistics that appear in network analysis that don't appear elsewhere. So the important thing is to think about what type of network analysis you're doing and what you want to take from it. And also what is the meaning of the things that you're observing? Because if you think about things that can throw between a network, if we're thinking about money throwing between a network, then once it goes to one person to another person, the first person doesn't have it. Whereas if we think about information, if I pass information on to somebody else, I've still got that information myself. So when we're thinking about the element of throw, we need to be thinking about what throw actually means. And when we're thinking about this in terms of social isolation, obviously the benefit that you're getting from being friends with somebody is a benefit that that person's getting as well. So what we need to be as our first stop is just thinking, why does this pattern of interconnectivity matter? But also what is the meaning of it for the respondents or for the actors within the network? That was a really in-depth answer. Next question I will ask is, what form does the analysis take and are there any standard metrics? Okay, so this could be a longer answer, but I'll try and answer it a bit quicker. <laughs> so the, as I say, it's a bit of a toolkit. So different studies will use different things. So when we're looking at an entire network, we can use measures like centrality measures that enable us to tell us particular positions of power and influence within a network. So sometimes we're looking at how many connections you've got or how much you control the flow of resources or how closely you can connect to other people. 
when we look at it, what we call an ego net analysis, which is looking at the network around one person, sometimes they're looking at how well connected their friends are. Because if you're part of a network where everybody knows each other, that's completely different to being part of a network where none of your friends really know each other. So there's different types of measures we can use in those respects. And it's really just a case of there's so many different ways we can apply network analysis. Then I could either give a relatively quick answer or I could be sat there for six weeks answering. You could write an essay on it. And, and how do you deal with the taxonomy? So what do you mean by taxonomy? Sort of the, the classification of different relationships and things. Because it's all quite subjective, surely. Yeah, it can be very subjective when we're thinking about what a tie means. And that's where we need to be defining these things quite strongly at the start of our projects and our ideas. So if we're thinking about, for instance, our two organisations connected to each other, then we don't want to be in a situation where we think they're connected because they happen to do one thing or happen to do another thing. So if we say that they're connected by whether they share a director or whether they've got a formal contract of agreement to trade with each other, then that's very different to them thinking, well, they do show each other on social media and they do sort of appear in quite a lot of photos together. So what we need to be thinking about is the way we're defining a tie. And from in that, when we're thinking about what is meaningful in terms of hierarchy, we need to be thinking about what is the measure that we're using. So are we interested in influence in terms of being able to control information passing from one person to another as to throw through you? Or are we interested in how quickly you can get information to everybody else within the network? So again, it's more at the preparation stage. And, and Nicole, it's your turn now. Are you ready? So what skills should someone work on developing if they want to use social network analysis? I agree with Dave. Um, the, the responses are endless. Really. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess conceptually, it's important to hone your skill at visualizing and understanding social networks as complex dynamic systems. And they're assistant, they exist in three-dimensional space and back and forth in time. And that sounds a bit a bit mind-boggling, but if you think about your own relationships, you have relationships with people that you've known for ages and in relationships with people that you've only known for a very short time. And they can exist over the internet or they can exist in, in real space face-to-face -face, or in written documents. It, it, it just does go on and on the way people interact with one another. And the way that these networks expand and contract and relationship ties strengthen and weaken, um, it influences a person's feelings and their beliefs and their behaviors, past, present, and future. So it's good to take a moment and wrap your head around that or take lots of time and wrap your head around that when you're working with social network analysis. And, and always remember that social networks are they're changing, they're dynamic. And I guess beyond that, the next thing I would say is that if you're going to conduct a research um, of any type, but uh, social network 
research in particular, it's good to develop a skill for convincing your chief investigators and funding bodies to incorporate social network measures into the designs and methods of large, well-resourced, inclusive longitudinal studies. Um, both cohorts would be great <laughs> if we can work that in. Um, yeah, I, an article that every dementia researcher has probably seen or heard of um, is the 2020 Lancet Commission Report on Dementia Prevention, Intervention, and Care. And the report lists social isolation as one of the 12 top contributors to dementia risk in later life. Um, but the authors of that report and other reports have found that social isolation data, which is, is largely social network data, was not explicitly measured in most studies. And authors have to use proxies like marital status or cohabitation when you're looking at prevalence. So if you could use your skills of persuasion as a researcher to um, persuade chief investigators and funders to put social network measures into the longitudinal studies, that would be fantastic. And it would go a long way to answering some of the, um, some of the gaps in the evidence. Well, there's a, a, a call to everyone listening to this now, use social network analysis. <laughs> so if someone is mining data to perform this research, are there any particular considerations for ethics and consent? Well, honestly, my experience with data mining is somewhat limited. Um, I've used data from existing data databases in order to look at the associations between social networks and other variables, um, specifically like participant level data from ongoing cohort, cohort studies, sorry. And if someone's planning to repurpose similar existing data to answer new questions, then there are always ethical considerations around consent and privacy and confidentiality, as well as practical considerations around the quality and the validity of the data. So if, um, if you weren't involved in the data collection yourself, it's important to understand who provided the data and how, and if the data has been properly de-identified and cleaned and checked in any way, and as a researcher, you are required to understand and adhere to any existing data use agreements and data mining guidelines, as well as performing your own due diligence to establish how informed consent was obtained in the first instance. And if the consent was actually given for data sharing and reuse. Um, and of course, if you're accessing sensitive personal data, then you'll be expected to explain in great detail how you'll securely manage and store the data in any forms of the data that you produce. And something as a, as a reviewer, I'd like to put out there <laughs> that it's important in any publication or translation of your research findings that you should clearly and transparently explain the steps that you've taken to confirm informed consent as well as ensure the privacy and the confidentiality of the data. Brilliant. Informed consent and, and confidentiality is something we can't ever forget about, isn't it? Um, is there any other methods that someone might use alongside social network analysis? Well, it's my opinion that it's hard to think of any method that you wouldn't <laughs> use alongside social network analysis. <laughs> but um, as always, it depends on your research question. 
in the population you wish to research, uh, the people that you want to reach, um, and the available resources or constraints of your study. And social network analysis can be used alongside everything from evaluations of training and education programs to uh, assessments of biological or psychosocial interventions to neuroimaging results to data from twin study to comprehensive neuropsychological assessment survey measures qualitative interviews behavioral observations all of the above i would definitely recommend people use social network analysis so to sum up the answer to every question is it depends Oh, what's about um, software or graphs and things like that? Is there any particular software that's used in social network analysis? There are several. I might throw that question over to Dave if he doesn't mind answering it. Okay, so the one that I advise people to start with is a software called Payak, which is a really simple piece of software that I always tell my students it can be done by a 10-year-old and basically they laugh at me and say that that's not possible but then when we come to actually use it in the module they're quite convinced that it can be done by a 10 year old it's basically you can just produce a network within excel where all you need is the one column being sort of the first name and second column being the second person's name so if you want to sort of match people to people that they talk to you can just do that really simply in excel there's a little converter that you can get that into PIAC data. And then all PIAC is, is a little package with some drop down windows where you can get it very easily into being able to draw the sociogram and come up with some quite nice ways of sort of visualizing that. And if you want to come up with some of the measures like centrality or any of the more statistical elements, you can do that relatively easy. So I would always say PIAC is a very good one to start off with. The other one that is easy is UCINet, which does a little few things that are more advanced than PIAC. It's a slightly more advanced version of it that can do some of them, some more functions once you start to get to use more data and once you become more familiar with it. But again, it's very, very simple. And both of those packages have little sample data sets that you can play about with that are easy enough to download from their websites. So I would advise people to start off with PIAC or UCINet. There's also a lot of work gets done in the R package now, so that quite a lot of network analysis is getting done using R, which is more of a general social statistics package. And there's quite a lot of more specialist packages as well for some of the more specialist things you need to do. So there are quite a lot of different packages out there, but UCINet and R, sorry, UCINet and PIAC are the two easy ones to get started with if you just want to have a little bit of a play about and create your own networks and try and just basically draw them and visualise them. I do have to point out though that you said that the, the resulting diagram is called a sociogram and I think that whoever came up with all these terms in social network analysis did it on purpose to make them sound like social media platforms. <laughs> Yeah, all the social network analysis stuff started before social media, no, but there no. is an incredible <laughs> amount of terms. So we can call the links between people nodes, or we can call them edges and arcs, and we can call them all sorts of different things. But basically, it's a really simple idea that we just have some nodes or some actors 
that are connected and we can produce some pictures that we can call sociograms or graphs or as I often call them to my students, pretty pictures. Um, <laughs> the actual names don't really matter too much. <laughs> well, fantastic. Thank you so much. This is great. And I could really see how this particular method would have added to my own PhD research. <laughs> so what have we learned so far? We've learned that social network analysis is about mapping the sort of interactions and relationships and the quality of those and the directionality and, and the purpose of those relationships in, in a defined group of people and, and how those relationships might impact every aspect of someone's life, really, which... It sounds like a very, you know, to say it succinctly in a couple of sentences doesn't put, doesn't explain how much work probably goes into that. <laughs> so in this final part of the show, we're going to discuss the common pitfalls, challenges and how to avoid them. Interdisciplinary research on social networks is experiencing unprecedented growth fueled by the consolidation of the field of social network analysis and the increasing availability of data from digital networking platforms. So maybe all the problems have been solved, but I doubt it. So Anne-Nicole, can you tell us um, what challenges did you come across in delivering your research and what might you do differently if you were to do it again? Well, uh, just as this was pointed out by the previous conversation, um, social network analysis methods come with their own unique terminology and way of looking at the data. And although the, the methods have gained tremendous ground in use and popularity over the past few years, um, the terminology and the applications can still seem esoteric if you're not accustomed to them. And I found it challenging um, in the early days to translate methods and study outcomes in ways that were accessible and meaningful to the target audiences that I wanted to reach. Um, and as well, uh, just generally in doing the research, there were challenges to, um, to collecting self-report social network data from people who are experiencing complex health conditions with dementia. And working with people in the community and residential care takes time. Um, it's important to establish rapport um, with, with everyone you're going to interact with and to be prepared to explain exactly what you're doing and why in clear language <laughs> without the jargon and to be flexible and understand that your research is not their first priority. And when you're dealing with someone who is experiencing challenges of their own with their health and their cognition, um, it's important to be with them in the moment wherever they are. Don't force them into your space and time and be prepared to come back later for a chat if it's a not good, if it's not a good time to talk with them. Basically, um, conduct person-centered research when you can and try to make it inclusive for people who have sensory you know, deficits if someone has impaired sight or hearing or mobility, if they can't, um, ex if they have difficulty expressing themselves, um, difficulty with their speech, um, and thinking of social network data in particular, it's typically more difficult for a person to recall information than to recognize it. 
So consider using rosters of names or photos or other visual aids that might trigger someone's memory or something that they can recognize. And, and David, what do you think are the common pitfalls and how would you avoid them? Yeah, I think one thing many people do when they start to use network analysis is basically try to do everything. So there's quite a lot of different ways we can apply network analysis, going from basically just a continuation of more qualitative interview type things, where we're just adding the network as, a, as sort of an add-on. So we're not moving too far away from adding in a few theories, right the way through to trying to understand the structure of networks and producing algorithms in order to understand a lot more about the different types of configurations that can exist within a network. So one thing that I often find people struggle a bit when they first get involved with networks is trying to think that they need to have centrality measures in there and they feel that they need to have some form of permutation test just because all the textbooks talk about these particular things. But what we're trying to do with network analysis is basically use methods which aren't that different to what we've used before within our disciplines, but just take an extra step to understand a bit more about the way that the interconnected structure would operate. So the most important thing to remember is that what we need to do at the end of our projects is go back into our disciplines and communicate in the way that people who know our discipline but don't understand network analysis can basically understand what we're talking about. So we need to be really aware that we're selecting the best methods for the thing that we're trying to do rather than trying to do everything. I think following on from what Annika said, we also need to be aware that no matter how easy we make it for respondents, they're always going to try and trip us up. So if we're thinking about asking people questions about who's important to them in terms of people, then we're going to get people saying, right, my friends at the tennis club or people on an internet forum and organisations will then for which trip into being the people. And one important thing is to be trying to anticipate what sort of things respondents might be saying to trip you up, because you can guarantee when you get into the field that you're going to get some answers that you just never expected but which do seemingly make sense so try and anticipate entirely what people would say and definitely do pirate studies with people you know and also people you know are going to try and annoy you because you need to be ready for the unexpected to come up i know full well if anyone said who's important to you i'd tell them one of them sat on my feet and is a whippet and the other one's asleep on the sofa and is a labradoodle so one question to both of you if you could give a bit of advice to anyone who was planning to use this research method for the first time, what would that be? And if I if I put Anne Nicole on the spot first? Certainly. Um, well, I guess thinking about the type of information that's needed in the literature generally, I'd encourage people when they're designing their research, um, if they can, aim for longer follow-up times. Um, a, a greater focus on the diversity, the quality, and the meaningfulness of relationships, and um, aim for precise information that can then enable specific targeted network, network interventions um, that can promote 
in in the case of the area that I'm interest, of my interest, um, interventions that promote healthy brain aging for at-risk members of the community. Thank you. And and David, what would your piece of advice be? I would advise people to embrace the fact that it's interdisciplinary and read lots of stuff from outside of your discipline. So one of the things that I love about going to the big social network conferences is that there is literally people there from every academic discipline. So you can suddenly find that you're going to a session where it's people from aquaculture and biology and then a study from health sciences and then another one from geography, which are all fields I don't really work in at all. But just seeing the way that it's getting applied and seeing it from an outside perspective is really nice. So I would advise people to not just look at the network studies within their area, look at it across all sorts of different disciplines. And a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in in terms of human sort of social connections and the way we might measure that, I get quite good insights from looking at the way people measure the friendship patterns of whales. Um, sociologically, that's not doesn't make any sense, but it's a really nice way of being able to see the way people are thinking about the methods and people are taking it forward. So the third main advice I would give to people is to embrace the interdisciplinary element of it. And the second bit of advice is that there's always going to be studies in things that you're interested in. So when I've seen papers called the social networks of Whitpop or the social networks of Formula One drivers, I suddenly just drop everything and read them, not from an academic perspective, but just based on my interests. So you can often find some really fascinating studies that you wish you'd written. And just embracing the interdisciplinary element of it rather than reading the stuff related to your work is a really nice way to move forward. I can see in my head thinking of um, doing a social network analysis of my dog's doggy friends. That would be quite fun. But this this has been really helpful. I mean, in dementia, we know that social isolation and loneliness can be major factors in contributing to rapid deterioration and to people getting the disease in the first place. But more research on this would be great, as Anne-Nicole pointed out earlier. And this method is clearly essential. So in this final segment, I'm going to give our expert, David, one minute to tell our listeners what they should go away and read to further their knowledge on this method. David, over to you. I'm starting the clock now. So the first book I would advise is the book called Social Network Analysis by John Scott, which is an overview of how network analysis exists and the way you apply all the different methods. So it's a really nice introduction to the concepts. If you're thinking about doing a study using network analysis, then there's a book called Doing Social Network Research by Gary Robbins, which assumes that you know the basics of network analysis, but gets more into the practical things that you're going to encounter, such as all the ethical considerations and all the sort of pitfalls that we've talked about already. So that's a fascinating book to read if you're thinking of doing a project. And if you want to just get an overview about how network analysis works, now you can apply it. Then the book Connected by James Fowler and Nicholas Constakis is a fascinating book about the way that people's friendships have an impact upon their health and gives a really nice example of the way that we can use network analysis to understand more about health. Fantastic. Thank you so much. 
I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. So let me say a huge thank you to our wonderful guests. In the expert corner from the University of Stirling, it's Dr. David Griffiths and the brilliant Dr. Anne Nicole Casey. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming and chatting to me and making this seem like something I might understand. <laughs> and to you, dear listeners, join me tomorrow for some more romp through research methodology. But for now, I'm off to go do a critical analysis of my very few Twitter followers. We will be back tomorrow, continuing our journey as part of the Research Methods Festival, where I'll be joined by Professor Andrew Clark and welcoming back Dr. Karen Hughes discussing qualitative longitudinal methods. Bye.